Hi, everybody. I'm Francesca Maxime, and this is Wise Girl. And I am so happy to bring you a really timely, really important conversation with Dr. Diane Goodman. She is a diversity and social justice training consultant. She is doing a lot of work here in New York City and all around the country around issues of racial justice. Uh, trainer, consultant, professor, speaker, author, and activist, Diane Goodman has been addressing issues of diversity and social justice for over three decades. As a trainer and consultant, she and her associates have worked with a wide range of organizations, community groups, schools, and universities on diversity and social justice issues. And she uses a participatory approach, helping people increase their awareness knowledge and skills to foster equity and inclusion. And she's offering a workshop actually uh, here in New York City at the end of this month. And she can also travel to meet you or your organization wherever your needs are. So uh, Dr. Goodman, Diane, I'll call you for this interview. Thanks so much for joining us today on Wise Girl. I'm so glad to be here. I'm looking forward to talking with you. You know, Diane, we met when I took a very short uh, course that you had offered in the city when I was starting to take some implicit bias courses last fall. And uh, it was part of an awareness that I had come into around a group called Focusing International. Can you talk to me about, um, first of all, just so folks who don't know, um, focusing and what that is uh, in terms of how that plays into the work that you're doing here on the racial justice part, and then we'll get into the uh, conversation, the larger and broader conversation about social justice. Sure, so I'm actually not officially part of the focusing community. Um, someone from Focusing International, who I've met through different work, um, wanted to partner to do this because part of uh, what they're concerned about are also issues of social justice. So I really can't speak um, a great deal about their work, but it really is focused on well-being, individual and community well-being, and using ways of tuning into the body and focusing inward um, to really pay attention to what's happening in our bodies. Um, so it's a nice complement um, to the work that I do, but I'm not directly part of the focusing community. And that's perfectly fine because honestly, I think that that's actually a good way to explain the fact that oftentimes when we have reactivity, which is often sort of the seed of what um, unskillful actions can be as they pertain to race or even unconscious bias, uh, it does start in the body. So it's great that um, you know we were able to connect on that, on that ground. Um, when you said uh, in this most recent um, offering that you're going to be having in New York City, uh, in a recent email, it's called Developing a Racial Equity Lens, Moving Our Intentions into Effective Action. And you're going to be co-teaching this with a woman uh, by the name of Tanya Williams, who has a website called AuthenticSeeds.org. It says, while racism is nothing new in the U.S., the recent election and current events have made abundantly clear how deeply entrenched and widespread racial bias and racial inequities are in our society. And some of the questions that you ask are, is it really my place to speak up? What risks and retaliation might I face? How do I talk so people can hear me? What, do, what if I say the wrong thing or offend someone? Do I know enough? Is this really racism or am I reading too much into it? And how do I deal with my own feelings so I can do something constructive? I love those questions. And I would love to just invite you to um, start talking a little bit about what is going on? <laughs> and what can we do? <laughs> well, I don't know if I can fully explain what's going on, um, but one piece of it, is that, you know, as I've said, you know, racism is nothing new in this country. Um, what has happened certainly since the election, it is just made more manifest, more obvious. Um, some of the racial biases people hold, some of the um, systemic um, and institutional racism that exists. And so I've seen people becoming more motivated um, to want to do something, that we can't pretend racism isn't an issue. And I think there are a lot of folks of goodwill. I mean, certainly of all races, and I can speak as a white person and working with other white folks, that people know that this is not right. What's happening to whether it's um, immigrants of different backgrounds, Latinx people in particular, you know, or Muslims or black and brown folks, that people know that this is not right. And many people feel, you know, what, what do I do about it? And it's trying to provide spaces for people to figure that out. 
And part of figuring that out is feeling more informed. Um, often people, especially white folks, feel I want to do something, but what do I do? And do I, as the questions indicate, do I know enough? So it's helping everybody um, feel more informed, feel like they have better language and frameworks to both understand and talk about these issues, and then figure out what's my role in it. Because I think we all can play different roles, and I don't suggest that everyone needs to be doing the same thing to be addressing racism or any other form of inequality, but we need to find where what we're drawn to do. Um, and I think it's important that people are able to, to find that space. Yeah, I love that. And one of the things that you say is we don't need to be perfect to make a difference. I feel like, um, you know, something that's come up in some of the conversations that I even had around gender equality and Me Too and all of that with folks is um, sort of similar in that people aren't saying certain things sometimes because they're afraid that they might say the wrong thing. And so we're not entering into these sort of detailed, messy conversations because we're kind of afraid to, you know, step on toes. And at the same time, then that doesn't really move the wheel forward at all. So one of the things that um, I would like to ask you about is what is the structural basic underlying piece of this that doesn't pertain to necessarily the individual? Meaning that we're not only just fighting ourselves, although that's where we you know, are working, um, we're also sort of embedded in this larger structural container. Can you talk a little bit about that as the baseline? Sure, and that's really important. And I often start there because I think the tendency is to focus on the individual and interpersonal. And that's really important, and I wanna talk about that as well. But it is so much bigger than us um, and us as individuals. And even though we have responsibility um, to engage and to act as individuals and act collectively, that we are part of a history, a legacy of systems that have been going on since the founding of this country. And certainly if you look globally, they've been going on globally, you know, since human beings have existed, I would say. So in this country, you know, it was founded um, on genocide. It was founded on slavery of indigenous people, of black folks um, and brown folks. So we, we have that history um, and that has created structures and systems that we still see remnants today. Um, so whether it was um, you know, having native folks in boarding schools and stripping them of their culture and their language and their families and their uh, religion and spirituality, and now we see folks on reservations because the land was taken away from them, um, and we see the the uh, remnants of that long legacy about how indigenous folks have been um, treated in this country, that we still see um, you know, police brutality, um, which harkens back to way um, folks who were enslaved were, were treated and even after they were freed and Jim Crow laws. Um, we see you know, uh, the wealth gap um, because there were policies, especially housing policies after World War II, that didn't allow um, black and brown folks to get mortgages, to buy homes in the suburbs, um, and to accumulate wealth. And now we have this huge wealth gap. Um, and we certainly see it in where people are living in residential segregation, which impacts the schooling people receive. So we have this long history that I think it's essential to understand if we are to understand today, because otherwise it's easy to look at the racial disparities, the racial inequities and think, what's wrong with these people? And especially for white folks to feel, my parents came here as immigrants, they worked hard, they built a business, they bought a home, they succeeded, so why can't these other folks? And what's wrong with them? So I think it's so essential for many reasons that we have a larger historical and systemic understanding. And one other piece of that is the ideology that goes along with it, is the belief systems that we are taught. Because in order to allow these systems to happen, you need to convince people that in some way they're okay, that it's normal, it's natural, it's okay. And so it started when people were being enslaved. How do you justify enslaving people, other human beings? Well, somehow they're less human. Somehow they're three-fifths of a human being. They don't really need or deserve equal treatment. And so we also have these belief systems that 
um, we are taught and conditioned into and socialized into that then allows us to say, well, maybe these folks really aren't as smart. Maybe they really don't work as hard. Maybe they really are more violent. And we need to challenge the ideology, the belief systems that then justify um, the systemic and institutionalized forms of um, racism and certainly any form, other form of oppression as well. You know, Diane, um, that belief system also can be very insidious. We can say, well, I don't really see another person of color as less of a person. I'm a decent human being. But at the same time, it may play out differently than that in real life, even beyond our own consciousness, beyond our own ability to kind of recognize that. Um, you said you wanted to also talk about the personal. So how does that show up for an individual? Mm -hmm. So what's been exciting about all the work done on unconscious or implicit bias, because, you know, as you said, we are socialized and conditioned into these systems. You know, if you go to school, if you read a newspaper, if you watch TV, if you go to a movie, you know, the images that you see reinforce racist notions. So all of us, people of color and white folks, internalize these messages. Um, and you know, we may have other countervailing forces in our lives, especially folks of color who may come from families or communities or faith communities that really offer um, some alternative perspectives to the dominant narrative. But nonetheless, if you're existing in mainstream society, you are getting these racist messages, either overtly or covertly, what's being addressed, what's not being addressed, um, what we learn about, what we don't learn about. And we internalize that. And the research on anticipated bias has really demonstrated that beautifully, that as human beings, we need to sort the information that we take in. We take in so much, we need to chunk it, we need to sort it, we need to categorize it. And that leads to racial biases that we then categorize people in different ways. One of the pieces of work is to start to understand how has that happened for me? Um, there's a test that many people have taken called the implicit association test through Harvard, where you can go online and take, you know, tests to test your implicit bias about all sorts of groups. Um, it can be quite humbling for those of us who think, you know, we don't, we don't have any biases. Well, you know, think again. Um, but by becoming more aware of our biases, it then allows us to be more conscious of them, to check them, and to actively work to change them. And one of the ways we can change them, in addition to becoming more aware, is to really have experiences that counter them, um, is to really um, get to know people, to become informed, that challenge whatever our, you know, um, sort of implicit understanding may be. And the other piece I want to say about that is that what the research shows is that even for those of us who truly hold equitable beliefs, like we really believe that all people are equal, that we really want to be treating people fairly, that even when we have those um, authentically held beliefs, we can still have implicit biases and still unconsciously act in ways that belies those conscious beliefs. I love that um, you're saying that. I'm not loving the fact that that's true. <laughs> I wish it weren't true. Um, but I, I love the fact that you're naming that because I think that it's really important. And I also think it goes back to what we mentioned in the beginning regarding the focusing is that some of this is sort of stored in the body, in the neurology, in our brain, in our limbic patterns, in the ways in which that we are patterned and conditioned, and even epigenetically to a certain degree. You know, there are certain things that we carry, but um, I won't go deep on that end of it. But the truth is, is that we come into the world sometimes with a certain... Uh, you know, sort of predisposition. And then we're, of course, our, our, our nurture nature, our nature uh, part is half of it, but the nurture part is half of it too. And part of that is societal, even if we had a family that was very, you know, sort of liberal thinking, if you will. Um, you say people are grappling with a range of emotions, and this is people who are uh, folks of color and white people, a range of emotions, anger, fear, despair, sadness, and guilt as they live their lives and hear the news. Um, you know, just around the corner from me the other day, another African-American man was uh, shot and killed uh, here in Brooklyn. Um, we continue to have um, these things come up in the news, as you mentioned, uh, that are real people's lives. And I want to also say that I've heard a lot of my, my friends who are people of color who are trying to do similar work to the work that you and Tanya uh, are doing, that they continue to emphasize 
your liberation is bound up in mine, meaning that the freedom of someone who is a, a, a non-person of color, a person of dominant culture or, you know, with white skin privilege, if you will, that, that there is a part of um, that person's liberation that is limited based on these implicit beliefs or these overt beliefs. Can you talk a little bit about this uh, commingling, this interdependence, this, you know, we're all of the human race, whether you want to believe it or not? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really the foundation of my work. Um, and I've written about, I have a book called um, Promoting Diversity and Social Justice, Educating People from Privileged Groups. And part of the, some of the chapters in there are really about how folks from privileged groups, including white folks, um, are also harmed by systems of oppression and by racism in particular, and what we also gain by unlearning racism and working for racial justice. Foundational to that is that we are all dehumanized by participating in systems of oppression. And my liberation as a white person is undoubtedly connected to the liberation of folks of color. We are not harmed in the same ways. We are not dehumanized in the same ways. Clearly, people of color experience are the targets of racism. Um, they are the ones that are facing the discrimination and the violence um, and the marginalizations throughout all you know, aspects of society. So I'm not at all equating the experiences of people of color and white people. And I want to be really clear about that. White people clearly benefit in many ways from systems of racism um, and white supremacy, that we are the group at large that are advantaged. Um, so I think we need to be clear that that is all happening. Um, at the same time, by participating in these inequitable systems, I think white folks um, are dehumanized. There are costs to us because we cannot claim our full humanity when we are in systems that are oppressing other people. That when we are in roles, um, whether we want to be or not, um, that when we have learned things that are clearly erroneous about ourselves and other people, that we cannot claim our full humanity. And I think, you know, as we see white people react to what's happening to folks of color, I mean, I think that is the humanity in us to say, this is wrong. It's wrong on a moral level. It's wrong on a spiritual level. It's wrong on an intellectual level, um, on an emotional level. Like, this is not okay. So when I do this work, um, and especially when I work with white folks, it is from the perspective that we need to own and acknowledge the ways that we do benefit from systemic racism. And we are responsible for what we individually do and what we collectively do. And we have a role to play in, a very important role to play in dismantling racism. And at the same time, really look at what is in it for us, how this is about our liberation too, and our lives are interconnected. And Martin Luther King said this, Nelson Mandela said this, um, you know, many great leaders have said this who have deep understandings of how oppression worked, that our fates are intertwined. Um, and that's one piece that I, and I think when we are grounded in that, it moves us away from this paternalistic or more, um, savior stance as a white person to say, I'm doing anti-racism work because I'm going to help save people of color. They don't need us to save them. <laughs> they need us to dismantle racism. Um, so I think we can come at it from a place and work in solidarity in a way when we realize that our lives really are intertwined, that my liberation is tied up with your liberation, and that there is something that um, white folks gain from doing this work um, on a very deep level besides, you know, helping folks of color. Yeah, um, I, I love that. And, I, you know, I've had conversations with folks about the difference between allyship being a white ally and partnership being actually sort of in the trenches together, doing whatever the digging is, um, although maybe with different tools and, you know, maybe with uh, a different approach, but certainly more in a collective way. And, um, 
and the difference between feeling as though you're sort of giving to someone else who needs it to recognizing that actually you need it too. <laughs> and that like, this is good for both of us. And it makes everything work better as opposed to like, I'm just doing you a favor because I can. I think yeah. that that sort of philosophical difference is really fundamental in terms of the deeper intention and the deeper spirit in which one brings the uh, brings oneself to the table. Um, talk a little bit about something you started to mention, which is, and something I've also experienced um, with folks when I've tried to have these conversations is for non-white, for non-people of color, for, for white people or dominant people, like, why do I care? What's in it for me? I'm going to lose. I'm not going to gain anything. I have to give stuff up. I don't want to do that. Why would I want to do that? I've heard it from people in the racial spectrum and also, like I was saying earlier, on the, on the gender spectrum, too, when it comes to things in, in regard to, you know, issues pertaining to men and women. So when someone comes back at me with, yeah, I know it's a good idea, uh, you know, sure, but I don't want to give up my goodies. What do you, how do you begin to address that? Yeah. In, in a few ways. So... First, there is no simple answer. I don't have the magic response and then all of a sudden everyone, you know, gets on board and we sing Kumbaya and we, you know, uh, go to the march together. So um, it is not, I don't want to make it sound like it's that simplistic. Obviously, we know it's not. One thing that I think happens for folks is that they imagine a flip. So they imagine, oh, you know, if we have, if we eliminate racism, then somehow people are gonna, of color are gonna now be in charge. And now I'm as a white person gonna be oppressed. They assume that we're gonna keep the same power hierarchies and just flip who's in what position. That's not what social justice or racial justice is about, certainly from my perspective. You know, it is about equity. It is about that everybody, and I mean everybody, can be safe reach their full potential, experience their full humanity. Um, so it is not about now we just want other people to be oppressed and now someone else gets to be the oppressor, that that's not the model we're going for. So part of it is helping white people understand that it's not simply this flip um, that's going to happen, that we're not about let's now oppress white people. At the same time, it does mean that it will mean some sharing of power. There will be some giving up. But it is, in my mind, reaching a place where then everybody can have their needs met. So I might be giving up a little bit, and that is real. I mean, it will be giving up some power as white people. Um, it will be sharing power. But it doesn't mean I become powerless. And on a broader level, it means that other folks can be living um, fuller lives and more equitable lives, which benefits all of us in a sense of, I mean, the, the violence that we worry about, that white people worry about, and needing to make sure they're living in a good neighborhood, good neighborhood, you know, going to good schools, living in a safe community, um, you know, about as much money is going to paying taxes that support all sorts of social services, um, you know, our incarceration system, although the degree that it's privatized, people are making money from that and have investment in keeping that system. But there are lots of ways that as a member of society, we deal with the results of racism and inequity because there is greater violence. It is cost more. And if we didn't have that, then we would have more schools to choose from because they'd all be good schools. We would have more neighborhoods to live in because they'd all be good neighborhoods. Um, you know, we wouldn't be worried about um, the same degree of violence, I don't think. You know, that we weren't need to be putting money into dealing with all the ramifications of inequities in our society. I mean, I think the drug use, um, is, is tied up in this as well. Um, you know, people self-medicating in all sorts of ways um, to kind of live in, in the society that we've created. And so sort of on the bigger picture, it's helping people think about, well, how might my life also be better if there was more equity and I didn't have to worry about the effects of racism. And then so for some folks, it's on a more personal level that, people talk about feeling uncomfortable 
dealing with folks who are different from them, dealing with people of color, feeling comfortable going to certain neighborhoods, traveling to certain places, going to certain events, feeling awkward and uncomfortable and self-conscious at work. Um, that doesn't feel good to folks. I think people would rather feel you know, more comfortable and free and connect with, with people more easily. And so those are some of the kinds of things I'll try to talk with people about, depending on, you know, who they are and what their concerns are. And, and one other piece that happens that I think we're seeing a great deal in our society right now is the scapegoating of people of color for larger systemic issues, that immigrants are not the problem about jobs. You know, um, people of color are not the problem with people having jobs. Uh, that it's, you know, we live in a larger capitalist system. Um, we live in ways where there's all sorts of income inequality um, and policies and practices um, that support that. And so sometimes it's redirecting the anger and fear people have that is now intentionally being focused on you know, folks of color and other marginalized groups and helping people see that, in fact, there's more, there's often more in common um, than there is that divides us. But historically and currently, um, intentionally people have been divided, especially along class lines, to keep the racial hierarchy in place. And so again, if there's the space to do that, um, helping people look at that more carefully is one way also to move people off the, I don't want to, you know, what's in it for me to change racism. Yeah, I love that, um, Diane, because um, actually later this week, uh, I'm going to be talking to, in much the same way I am with you right now, uh, Michael Kimmel, who's a sociologist, um, and he has been looking at this idea of aggrieved entitlement for a long time, which he is basically saying, like, look, there's... Um, white poor people who are angry but angry at the wrong thing or the wrong people and he's not saying they're wrong to be angry he's saying that you don't need to target that kind of anger at folks who uh as you say are also kind of really more in the same boat mm -hmm. when it comes to opportunities and uh, when it comes to um access um and so i think that that's a big part of it is the economics the class line and that the division came out of that you know in terms of the um you know historical uh, fomenting of difference uh, in addition to the subjugation directly uh, around slavery uh, that there was the division when people did try to come together around class lines back in the day when whites and blacks did try to join uh, that whites were given more access to land ownership even if it was partial partial when uh, people of color were not and so then it became you know sort of uh, uh, I want to say it's sort of a tree that grew in that way that um, like you say it, it multiplies and then it and then it does have economic consequences when someone is um, in a personal relationship you mentioned that earlier having a um, the one of the things that helps change people's ideas about this in a very real visceral way is if someone is able to have a personal relationship with someone who is otherwise affected by racist attitudes is systemically or, or otherwise. Talk about what someone who lives in a white community or goes to a white school, what might they do or how might they begin to approach expanding their view or widening their circle to um, have that direct experience? Mm -hmm. Well, in the age of technology, it's made it easier. Um, you know, some folks may be really isolated in very rural white communities where it's really hard to engage with folks of color. Many people, if they get out of their bubble or small community, there are other folks around, you know, if they want to seek out those experiences. Um, so, I mean, first of all, there's no shortage of things to read. Um, pers personal accounts, firsthand stories um, are a great way to get some insight into other people's realities. And again, there are certainly books and there's certainly plenty of stuff online. Um, now there are blogs and websites and, you know, online courses. And, and, you know, there's really no shortage of ways that if people are interested, they can really, I mean, movies, um, documentaries, there are lots of ways that people can um, hear personal stories, get a better understanding. And what tends to be true is that for those of us when we're part of dominant groups generally, and especially for white folks, is that 
we can close ourselves off to those experiences and need to be intentional about understanding that. And so it does take some initiative. It does take intentionality to say, I really want to understand this. I really want to understand different people's experiences from these groups and not rely on what the narrative from the dominant culture may be, what I'm just seeing on the news or on TV um, or in whatever movies I may be watching or TV shows, but really seek out a fuller breadth um, of people's experiences. So that's available to anybody. And hearing personal accounts that um, those kinds of telling stories does really impact people. Um, in very meaningful ways very often. And obviously if that can happen in person, I think it's even that much more powerful, which is a part of the work you know, that I do. And it's also looking for opportunities to connect with folks. Um, and again, because of housing segregation, educational segregation, and even our workplace segregation, uh, that it takes intentionality. And I would caution that when we do that, to do that in a way that feels open and authentic, that it's not done from a voyeuristic perspective. It's like, I want to go see what, the, what these people are like. Um, or going in, as we said before, with the sort of savior mentality of like, well, I'm going to win to go help these people because they need my help and I know what's best for them. Um, or simply from the space um, of, well, I'm going here to learn. And so that's, that's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm here to learn. That I think we need to go in with a deep sense of humility, um, a deep sense of openness to say, yes, this is something I want to learn, but I want to do so in a way that is respectful, in a way that is humble, in a way that is open and show up to say, how, how can I be here in appropriate ways? How can I be here in helpful ways? And to be willing to listen, to learn, to respond. Um, so I want to encourage folks to get out of their narrow communities and to build connections across difference, but to really be mindful and thoughtful about how we do that, or I think it really can feel exploitive and harmful. Yeah, and I want to just um, continue to build on what you're saying, because um, maybe we can do a little role play. I'll play devil's advocate in the sense, because I think it's, this is where the rubber meets the road for me um, in terms of how people... Um, can be skillful or not skillful about trying to be more aware or open-minded. And they can also be uh, sort of once bitten, twice shy. Like if it doesn't go so well and they sort of stick their toe in the water of trying to be more um, integrated in some way in their, you know, in their circle of, of, of friends or of, of, of people, uh, if it doesn't go perfectly, then they might want to say, well, then forget it. You know, I tried and, you know, these people aren't, you know, going to want me around or something like that, you know? So, so how would this work? I mean, I'm at work. I'm a, I'm a white person. You're a black person. You are one of my team of 12 and you, uh, you're like the one black person. And then there's somebody who's like maybe biracial or something like that. And, uh, you know, and, and, and I'm leading this team and, uh, you know, I haven't had any extent of, uh, you know, job on the job training about racial issues other than, you know, diversity is good or, you know, whatever. And, you know, we, we encourage diversity and we respect all voices or something like that. Right. How do I go about talking to you about your experience and saying like, yeah, I want to, I want to know how I can support you or how I can, how you can teach me certain things that maybe I don't know that I need to know. Um, because on the other hand, I've heard a lot of people of color say, it's not my job to teach you. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. It's not. Um, and so I wouldn't suggest approaching it in that way. Um, I would say newsflash, like people of color are, are people too. You know, how would you approach anybody at work that you wanted to get to know better? Um, so I, I think we start with being human beings together. Um, and it's like, yes, you know, you may want to intentionally reach out to folks, you know, um, who are different than you. And often people may feel more isolated in their workplace um, if they're one of the few people of color. And so sometimes it's welcome, you know, that people are being friendly. But I would do that in the way that I would do with anyone else that I'd want to build a relationship with work. You know, you talk about things you have in common, you talk about your work, you see if there's any kind of chemistry, you know, maybe decide you want to go get some coffee or sit and have lunch together and you build an organic relationship. Um, 
I don't think it's about um, this is because then it feels exploitive. Then it feels like I'm using you for my educational purposes. And yes, do we learn things by having relationships across difference? Of course we do. But it needs to grow out of um, an authentic connection. Um, so I would you know, say to folks, if there are people at work that you want to get to know, get to know them as fellow workers and human beings and go from there and see where that leads. And just with anybody, there are going to be some people that we connect with more and there are going to be some people we connect with less. And people are also in different spaces. I mean, there's some folks of color who feel like, you know, hanging out with white people ain't what I want to be doing. Um, and that's fine. Um, and other folks may really welcome it. And that's the same thing when we do something that doesn't go well. Um, I think we need to look at why didn't it go well and learn from that and have people to talk with about that to help us figure that out. Um, and at the same time, realizing as in any other part of our lives, we do things, sometimes it works well. I mean, people who date will you know, try one approach and sometimes it works and another time it doesn't work. So I think we need to be careful about making these big generalizations. No, I, I appreciate that. And I mean, in just a few decades, we're going to be a majority minority, quote unquote, people of color culture, culture here in America, right? We're the browning of America, if you will, you know, um, as we continue to have relationships like my, my parents did. My father was Haitian and Dominican. My mom was Italian American. And so, you know, I'm this sort of mutt, if you will, this mix of all these different things. And, and I think we continue to see more and more of that um, than we did before because there used to be laws against it, um, you know, and, and um, people were, were punished. Talk a little bit about, though, the tribalism that still exists and sort of where that comes from in terms of people saying, you know, I'm safer here, this is my tribe, or, you know, uh, and how that's kind of a, it's not even just a historical thing, it's also like a, a, a physiological thing at a certain level, and then how we can kind of go beyond it. It's almost like having to go beyond our negativity bias. We almost have to, like, like you say, intentionally do something opposite that which would happen, not so much naturally, but evolutionarily. Mm -hmm. So I think because of how we live now, and so, so I think the segregation we see is more about um, systemic inequity than it is about tribalism. Uh, because at this point we are, we are such a mix um, and we do live in such proximity to each other and there's so much mobility that I think the tribalism of the past you know, it's, it, it's certainly really different now. I think so much of the separation we've seen is fomented by um, societal forces. And I find that, you know, many people are interested in differences. I think that's also part of our innate nature is to be interested in each other and to have empathy and want to cooperate. So that's the part that I try to pull for. Uh, is, you know, we're interesting and, and people have commingled forever, you know, so there's always been that pull to be like, huh, you know, the difference is interesting. It's not just scary. It's not just negative. So I think how do we really support that? And as you said, there's more and more kids and people who are bi and multiracial. So that's happening you know, organically, and it's going to continue to happen. So people are not fitting into neatly into the boxes society has created, which are artificial boxes to start with. So I think what we need to be doing is helping people develop greater comfort in navigating those differences and changing the systems and structures that set people up against each other. Right. And, and I think that, you know, that could be anything from gerrymandering to the school to prison pipeline, if you will, to um, a variety of, of, of different things. I mean, time and time again, research has shown that if you take a, uh, a person of color or someone who's white who has the same amount of marijuana, for example, on them, you know, that the person who gets incarcerated is the person of color more often than, than the other. And, and things like that that end up perpetuating a system that then um, creates these uh, greater divisions. Talk a little bit about um, sort of what you're leading into for me is a little bit about cultural appropriation also too, um, which is, you know, when is it okay to celebrate? When am I celebrating? right, with you about whatever it is that's, and when am I really just like stealing your 
whatever it is, your dress, your, you know, music, your whatever, and, um, and claiming it as my own and then making a million dollars when, you know, you're not. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you, you named a big piece of it. Um, I mean, other folks have really written, I think, some very thoughtful pieces about um, understanding what is cultural appreciation versus cultural appropriation. And sometimes, you know, I find the lines can be a little vague. But the things I come back to is one of the things you raised is who's benefiting from it. You know, there are a lot of cultural practices that were viewed really negative or punished or treated harshly when it was happening from you know, the marginalized group or from folks of color, and then white people discover it um, or claim it or do it, and it becomes really cool um, and really valued, and often then people make money of it. You know, one of the things people talk about is the whole notion of cornrows, and even still, people can't wear their hair um, in that style if you're, if you're um, African-American, but when white people do it, it's really cool, and you can go to salons and, you know, get pay lots of money to have it done. So I think, you know, um, it's looking at how is it being valued? You know, was it valued when it was coming from the um, original community uh, that it, it comes from? Or is it only when it's being valued, it's only being valued when it's from the dominant cultural community? Who's benefiting from it? You know, who's making money off of it? And, you know, is it being done within an appropriate cultural context that so often things get taken out of an historical cultural context and get picked out and say, oh, this is something that's really cool and not realizing that it's part of a much more meaningful history. And that's another way that it becomes cultural appropriation, not really appreciating what it means in a cultural context. And then in terms of participating in things, it's are we being invited into that experience? Um, so if someone from a particular culture group invites us to participate, then that is an invitation and we can speak with them about how is the most appropriate way to participate. Do we do what they do? Do we watch? Do we do it in a different way? Um, and so I, I think it's wonderful when we can share cultural experiences, but it's really doing it, um, where it is welcome and we are doing it in a way that is, um, in the way that the people whose culture it is would like us to be there and to be participating. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of a time when I was a freshman in college and I was invited to a step show and I didn't know what that was, but one of my girlfriends who was um, African-American uh, invited me to go and I went, but I, I didn't know what I was getting into. It wasn't something that I had experienced. It wasn't something that I had been around. Uh, and it was, it was quite an experience, you know, a bunch of, of, of guys doing uh, a sort of formation type of dance that, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't aware of before, but that was in fact an invitation, right? It wasn't something that um, I just sort of uh, said, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to come up with this on my own and then create some new thing about it and, you know, charge people a hundred dollars to join this class where they learn this thing or something, you know? Um, so anyway, um, okay. Back to this other issue of um, appreciation versus appropriation. Um, I think one of the things that I learned in some of the trainings that I was doing last fall when I took your class, but it was in a different class is a lot of the folks who are of uh, white, skin privilege are coming from cultures under circumstances that are not ideal, that had to give up a lot of their own cultural backing from whatever their European or Eastern European or whatever it is, um, ancestry might have been in order to come here and to quote unquote assimilate into whatever it meant to be American. So for example, my family on my mother's side is Italian. They never spoke Italian in the home. Everybody needed to just learn English. It wasn't appropriate. They didn't want to be seen as what they were called at that time, a negative word, WAPs and um, DACOs and whatever other nasty things that were done. So how do people maybe look back at their own history, perhaps as a way to um, say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm just trying to go back to my roots maybe and not just use yours. Mm-hmm. Well, it's certainly never appropriate to use other people's um, cultures. Um, White folks certainly. So, generally, the, the, as you as you say, the history in this country had been the price of getting the benefits of whiteness meant leaving your ethnic ethnic identifications behind, and there was this pull for assimilation. And so, especially you know in the early 1900s, when there were waves of immigrants from Europe, um, Italians, Irish, Jews, Poles, that 
in order to be accepted into the larger society, to get the jobs, to be part of unions, that eventually they were able to be seen as white. Those groups were not initially seen as white. Italians and Jews um, and Irish in particular were not um, initially seen as white, were not initially welcomed into the, the world of whiteness and the benefits that that held. Um, eventually we were, I'm from Eastern European descent, um, Jewish. So eventually my ancestors and others could do that. That's never been available to folks who were black. So there was this sort of giving up and loss of our own cultures. Uh, there are other folks who have been here longer and feel even less connection. And so I think for some white folks, it can be important to try to look at what are our own ethnic cultural roots and what do we gain from those. And sometimes not even explicitly. For me, it's been interesting to see how much I have, um, I embody um, aspects of uh, Jewish, especially Eastern European Jewish culture in ways that was never taught to me directly. So it's not that I feel like, oh, I learned that in my family in overt intentional ways. But when I'll then read things and hear things or meet other Jews, it's like, oh, wow, like <laughs> that's me. And clearly that's from a lineage that I'm part of. So sometimes it's, it's looking back um, and doing some of that research and being able to identify and claim that. I know for some other folks who identify as white, it's been way longer, that their family has been here way longer. And it is harder to find really those European ethnic roots. But I think in whatever way we need to do that, that we need to feel some sense of grounding in, in who we are, not in this false notion of whiteness, which has been artificially created, but in some sense of ancestry and culture, however we do that, because certainly it is not um, useful to need to appropriate other people's culture to feel somehow whole or human. Again, we can certainly learn a lot from each other, but we need to have our own internal sense of, of wholeness, I think, then to really engage with other people in, in more constructive ways. I love that. And that gets to the next point about like um, this terminology of um, quote unquote white fragility and as it applies to shame. And I've heard a couple of people say, it's not white fragility, it's white racial fragility. Meaning that, um, white people aren't fragile about other things, you know, it's around this issue that there, you know, tends to be a sort of collapsing, if you will. And um, I've seen many people, when they begin to address these issues in a well-intentioned way where they're trying to figure out how to have these messy conversations, they're trying to sort of, or potentially messy conversations, where they're trying to sort of um, expand their awareness around issues of racial justice, that they just sort of um, feel overwhelmed feel like they're in a shame state, like I am taking on all the ills of slavery and the last 450 years of oppression and it's not my fault and I have kids to raise and a job to do and, you know, why do I need this? And, and so then it kind of almost becomes like, but I feel bad and then I am a bad person because I have this white skin and whatever. So can you talk a little bit about how people might deal with that aspect? Yeah. So that's a lot of what I deal with um, and talk about. Uh, because it is so necessary to deal with if we really want white folks to engage in dismantling racism. A couple of things or several things I think are at play. One is we don't have the experience talking about these issues. I mean, the dominant ideology in this country is you don't notice differences. You don't talk about them. We're colorblind. So, we grow up with these messages um, that it's not okay to talk about race. It's not okay to notice race. If you notice race, it's being racist. It's being divisive. And so we get these messages that say, A, it's not okay. And then B, we don't have the experiences to do it or to do it in a constructive way. So when we're growing up with folks and going to school, um, it's not like, you know, most of us have had the opportunity. I think it's getting a little bit better in some places, but have been able to have the skills to say, how do we have these conversations? How can we talk about who you are and who I am and our similarities and our differences in ways that are constructive and are growthful and we learn and feel empathic? We don't have that. So then as adults to say, okay, so now let's talk about all these intense controversial issues. It's like, 
ah. Um, and then that's coupled by this sense of if I'm white, it means I'm a bad person. That people do a lot of this dichotomizing. And Robin D'Angelo, who coined the phrase white fragility, she talks about this um, quite eloquently that you know, we've set up this racist, non-racist, good white, bad white. And those are completely false and completely um, counterproductive to moving forward on this. That, again, going back to what we originally talked about, was that we are all socialized and conditioned. So I have internalized racism. I, I, I could not not have, um, because that is the air that I breathed. As much as I'm committed to racial equity and have spent my life working on it, like, there's stuff of I internalized, there's still stuff I'm working on, because you can't help but learn that. Um, so I start from that premise, you know, that we've all internalized racist beliefs and messages. Okay, what do I need to do to start to unlearn those, to be conscious of those, to act differently, to be more aware of what I'm doing, to be an effective um, person working to change things. So it's getting out of this, if I acknowledge I have any racial bias or prejudice, that makes me bad. So if we can help people get out of, stuck out of that dichotomy, that then loosens people up to say, okay, I can still be a good person. You know, and I say, listen, this is, this is what I've done for my whole life. I think I'm a good person. I think I'm a good caring person. I'm highly imperfect, but you know, I think I'm a good caring person. And you know, I do things that are unintentionally racist um, and harmful to folks of color, even when I don't want to. And I'm trying hard not to, but that's the reality. So it's giving people space to be imperfect. It's giving people space to recognize the racial biases that they have, and it doesn't make you bad. And the point of this work is not about guilt and shame. Again, we're part of this legacy. We're part of these systems. That's where we start. And it's not my fault. So you don't, I don't feel a need to feel guilty about being white. I do feel like I need to understand my role in perpetuating the system and my role in dismantling the system. And so we do have responsibility and we do have accountability, but it's not about guilt. And so when I work, especially with white folks, it's really providing um, the space for people to let go of some of that defensiveness, that they're being told they're bad for being white, um, that they should feel guilty about being white, and it's your fault for racism. And if I can kind of help people let go of needing to um, feel so on guard about that and go, yes, I trust you are a good person. I see your humanity. I believe that you care about treating other people well. Let's figure out how to do that. Um, and that's one way I find a lot more constructive. But I want to acknowledge that there is a lot of fragility. There is a lot of resistance. There is a lot of defensiveness um, that white people exhibit and how frustrating that is, um, especially for folks of color. I know it's frustrating for those of us, you know, who are white or who are trying to work with other white folks, but especially, you know, for folks of color who feel like they try to talk about these issues or try to share their experiences. And meet a wall or meet the defensiveness or meet the, what well, that's not what I meant, or you're making too big a deal out of it, or you're playing the race card or you're being too oversensitive. And it goes back to what we said before about being able to have relationships across differences, cross racial relationships. Um, and one of the things that really block that is white people's not, um, is inability to sit and listen. Yeah. And I, I really, um, Love what you're saying. And also it, it highlights that we don't have really great communication skills in general. Right. Like, like forget about race, like a hot topic. <laughs> like, you know, people can't talk about sex and money. People can't talk about real estate. People, you know, that's why we talk about the weather because it's like, you know, sort of more um, benign, if you will, uh, to talk about. But that uh, actually learning communi communication skills in terms of confrontation, in terms of being able to have conflict or disagreement without having it be uh, like a fight or, a, you know, a cold war, so to speak. Um, Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication, I know, is a beautiful model that's very helpful to a lot of people. Um, but that it's, it's, it's sort of that as fundamental. And also even deeper in a more fundamental level, I think, is sort of this 
spiritual vacuity. Like people just don't have a grounding in themselves of saying like, I'm okay. Like there's so many messages from the marketing of the consumer culture that we live in to say, here's the million ways where you can be improved. You need this eye cream, this, you know, body suit, this, whatever, this, uh, this shoe, this car, this, and people internalize that to say I'm defective. And then that um, feeling of I'm defective is so in people who are in privileged or dominant positions because of all of that, or at least partly because of some of that, uh, coupled with whatever their childhood experiences might be that possibly might be adverse that would have contributed to it, that they then end up saying, well, I don't, you know, I can't take on this as well, like this other thing, like it's, you know, I get overwhelmed and sort of shut down. Um, so how does social media play into this? And, and what can people do maybe even as a practical tip on social media, like to, to either be helpful uh, or to just sort of say, I'm above the fray. I'm not going to do anything. What do you recommend? Yeah. So I, I, I just want to pick up on, something you said that I think um, is really important about, I don't have time for this. And this goes back to it being about all of our liberation. That people doing this isn't again, simply another thing on my to-do list, another thing I need to do for someone else, but recognizing that this is about my liberation too. And that, if you ask people to imagine the world they want to live in, I've yet to meet people who say, oh yeah, I really want to live in a world where I feel like, you know, I'm in a role of oppressing other people. You know, I'm, you know, I'm around where I know that people are treated unfairly and uninequitably. That I don't think that's really the world most people would ideally like. Um, and one of the um, things that I've written about, because I used to talk when I would do workshops or classes about my own process of unlearning racism and that ongoing process. Because people would often say, why are you doing this? And I would talk about how for me, it has been incredibly liberating. Um, and people would look at me with their mouths hanging open. Like, what do you mean? And I would just talk a little bit about how freeing it has been for me to feel just smarter I mean, to understand the world better, to understand other people better, to feel more myself and more authentic as I engage with other people, to feel less fear, just to feel like I can be more the person that I want to be and to be working to create the world I want to be living in. Um, that I interviewed a bunch of other folks who I knew had also done a lot of work around um, their dominant identities. It wasn't only around white folks, but men who were working against sexism and heterosexuals who were working against the oppression of LGBTQ folks. And there were all these similar stories um, that again are in my book about how transformative and liberating it is when we are engaged in our own process of unlearning the oppression from which we benefit. So, and when people often start doing some of this work, it can start to feel really mucky. It can start to be like, oh man, I didn't realize all the prejudices I had. I didn't realize how screwed up our society is. I didn't realize how long and, and entrenched this is. And, and that can feel overwhelming or people start to feel guilt. And what I feel is so important to hold out for people is that that's all normal and that's a part of the process as we start to really learn things that we never had the opportunity to learn. But that's not where it needs to end. That if we keep doing our work, if we keep learning and keep having experiences and keep staying open and keep trying things, that I think we get to such a healthier, more liberated space and we can be much more useful to other folks. And we can be much more useful to folks of color that we want to be working in solidarity with. So I, I feel that it's so essential for people to at least hear, even if they can't embrace it, to hear that that to me is what doing anti-racism work as a white person is about. Um, so the social media, I'm not a big social media person. Um, I think it's really important as a communication tool for people to know what's going on, um, to share resources, to share information, to uh, you know, be in communication in that way. I don't know, I don't think that it's a great tool for conversation, for changing people's mind. I think we really need to have um, more one-on-one -on -one, uh, 
kind of conversations and posting things on on Facebook. But there are other folks who I think use social media more extensively and more savvily than I do. And I will certainly defer to them if, if there are ways that they find it's really being useful. Yeah, I just, I feel as though it, it somehow, and I've seen it even recently, and I was just reading another article today about um, folks who um, are of high intellect even, but that it, it actually is fomenting more, it seems, of a division that would not be possible if you were talking to the person live, either like this in a, you know, digital setting, like face-to-face, -face, so to speak, or in a cocktail party conversation or a dinner table conversation. Uh, it just, it just wouldn't, wouldn't be that way. Um, what you're talking about, and we're going to wrap up because it's time almost, um, is that the idea of um, that we're cutting ourselves off, that this idea of being separate, that this idea of being different, that this idea of being unique, or this idea of being somehow um, that there's more to life if we can widen our view, if we can include our circle, if we can open our arms, open our heart, open our mind. And some of it I hear you saying is knowledge, meaning we go back and we learn things that we didn't know. Some of it is um, uh, skill building, which we uh, learn skills that we may not have in terms of communication or inquiry. And some of it is really just sort of intentionality, meaning that um, do I have a real uh, part of me that recognizes that this is uh, foundational and fundamental to uh, my well-being and that the more is the more meaning the more happy we all are it, it comes back to me too mm -hmm. I, I think that's beautifully put um when i uh started doing some research and talking with other folks who um had done a lot of work around unlearning some form of oppression i ironically called it the joy of unlearning racism as a as a takeoff on the joy of sex or the joy of cooking. <laughs> most people, I realize, it dated myself because most people didn't get that joke. Um, but it was really said more ironically. Yeah. And what I found is that people took that seriously. That it wasn't ironic. Um, that it really was the joy of unlearning, uh, liberating ourselves from the ways that we've been conditioned. And I do believe. Um, and our fundamental sense of humanity is that we want to connect with each other. We want to be seen. We want to see other people. We want to be able to experience the riches that our human diversity offers. And it's trying to create um, places where people can do that, um, trying to support people so they can engage in that way. And really the more is more. And that certainly has been um, what my experience has been and why I feel as deeply committed to this work now than I did, you know, when I started. And this is, and, and it is ongoing. It is ongoing work. Um, we, we will never be done. No, for sure. And a drop in the bucket, right? Like you start where you are and then you sort of expand the ripples and the pond in terms of the circle, in terms of the more enlightened you are about it, then that much more, you know, maybe somebody else's that you happen to be talking to in the line at CVS. Yeah. <laughs> Never know. Um, is there anything else that you want to add that we didn't get to? I know it's a lot, um, obviously, and you're going to be teaching your workshop April 21st and 22nd here in New York City, and all of that information is on your website, diannegoodman.com, and I'll also post the link along with this. Um, but are there any other parting thoughts that you might want to share with anyone? Well, I want to encourage people to think about the different ways that we learn and the different kind of supports we can get. Um, the, we, the workshop that I'm doing um, on April 21st, 22nd is with um, an African-American woman and it's open to folks of any racial background and we're doing that work together. It can also be really helpful to do some work with folks who are like you racially or any other identity. And what I found is some of the work I do around race is offering space for white folks to come together because I think there's a way we need to do our own work without looking to people to color to educate us, without worrying that I'm going to say something that's going to be offensive, that's going to be say something that's racist and make me look bad, that um, to provide support for each other, to provide some accountability and challenge for each other, that I think it can be really helpful. Um, and this is really in response to what folks of color have said for a very long time, that go, go work on your own stuff, don't worry about fixing us. And so I want to encourage um, folks who identify as white 
um, to find spaces where we can do some of our own work. Surge, S-U-R-J, um, showing up for racial justice is one great organization around the country that does this. Um, and certainly folks of color and folks from other marginalized groups need space where they can come together and not deal with the attitudes and the um, the needs of uh, people from the dominant group or white folks, and, and they can do the work that they need to do. And so I really want to highlight the value in, in both of those kinds of experiences and encourage people um, to seek out both of those as they feel they would be useful. And to be, um, as we do this work, to make sure that we have people in our lives that we feel a sense of accountability to, that we can check in with, because this isn't work we do all by ourselves, that we need to be um, talking with other folks, um, getting feedback from other folks um, who can really help us be on a meaningful and fruitful journey that really will move us towards um, liberation and justice. Uh, Diane, thank you. I love that. And um, liberation and justice for all, like I said, the more, the more. <laughs> it's not more for me, less for you, less for me, more for you. It's the more, the more. Um, and, and that you said we're wired for curiosity. You know, we, we can, if we can stay open and curious about all of this and um, sort of suspend our judgment at the, you know, at the, at the past, that would be great. And, and the other final thing that came to mind is cultural competency versus colorblindness right? Mm -hmm. like, you just want to be more informed and it's okay to like say, I don't know what I don't know. And we're going to go forward and, and try to learn some more. And I really encourage people to come out. If they're in New York, April 21st and 22nd, uh, diangoodman.com. It's on your website and you're going to be teaching it uh, with uh, Tanya Williams. And I look forward to this and I will see you there. Right. Good. <laughs> thanks so much, Francesca. All right. Thanks, Diane. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.